The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. They call him Chippy. In fact, he's been called Chippy around Parliament for an awful long time, as long as I can remember. And it's one of those nicknames that makes a person like they are. It's the name that actually makes sense. Chippy. Chipper. And that's who Chris Hipkins is. And you'll hear an interview today where he is remarkably level-headed, authentic, thoughtful, and seems to be answering the questions you're asking. He's a nice guy. I've known him for quite some time and I've heard from people who've worked with him that he is a a very thoughtful and clear leader and a good communicator. But is he trying to change the nation for the better? That's what we're going to try and find out in this week's When the Facts Change because we're now six years into a Labour government which promised in 2017 to build 100,000 houses, to build a light rail line, and to, to do some of the tough things. Well, that basically hasn't happened. And in this interview, we're going to find out that for now, he's not asking for ways to make it happen. In a way, he's accepting that it can't be done. Of course, this all comes back to the not in my political lifetime tag, which has been applied by Jacinda Ardern and Chris Hipkins to the idea of a capital gains or a wealth tax. He's argued, as his predecessor did, that you need a mandate to do something like this. Well, according to the opinion polls, there is a mandate for a capital gains or a wealth tax, and it is the fundamental problem at the heart of our political economy. I don't know how many times on this podcast I've talked about how we have a housing market with bits tacked on, how the incentives in our tax system drive everyone including some of our most successful business leaders, even the former successful business leaders, the ones who are the leader of the opposition, to put their spare money into residential land because that's the safest, biggest, fastest way to make as much tax-free gain as you possibly can for you and your family. And it's the deep, dark heart of our political economy that needs to be addressed. And in this election campaign, it's not. I'm not very chippy about this, to be be frank, and uh, you probably can hear this in the interview, because in many ways, listening to this interview, you'll, you'll feel a rising sense of frustration that the core issues are not being addressed. The big problems are not being addressed with big solutions. And there are big problems, not just on housing, but on climate change, which... 
Chris Hipkins answers the questions. But again, we are well short of our requirements to get to our Paris targets, and there are uncosted liabilities ahead of us for both sides of Parliament. This is a politics now of nudge, of fudge, of kluges, as they say in the world of software development, and a government, both Labour and National, who are fudging their way along without addressing these core issues. This week on When the Facts Change, chippy may be chipper, but I have to say a big chunk of the country is not. Tanakwe, and welcome to When the Facts Change to the Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins. How are you? I'm very good, thanks, Bernard. Lovely to have you on before the election. Um, this is a question that we often ask of politicians, especially now. Why should we vote for Labour? I think we should vote for Labour because I think the country is moving forward and I think we need to keep moving forward, tackling big issues like climate change, like child poverty, building more houses, getting on top of the rundown nature of our public services like our health and education systems, uh, building the infrastructure that's been badly neglected. We're making huge progress in all of those areas and I think now's not the time to turn back to the very policies that created the problems that all of those areas have been experiencing in the first place. So I remember the excitement around the 2017 election campaign, um, the 100,000 Kiwi build homes, um, the focus on housing affordability, uh, climate change. And uh, I, I wondered what's, what's changed since then in that six years that means you, you're not quite as confident or outward looking about achieving some of those things. Our vision hasn't changed at all. And the, thing, the goals that the Labour Party has and our hopes and aspirations for New Zealand's future are exactly the same as they were back in 2017. I think what has changed, though, is we've had a global pandemic in the meantime, and we've had to respond to a series of unprecedented events. What I'm putting before the electorate this year is a, you know, a series of, I think, policy commitments that are deliverable, that are achievable, that are affordable, but that do contribute to the vision that we put forward in 2017. Do you still want to make housing affordable, both to own and to rent? Absolutely, and I think that we do that um, by making sure that we're increasing the supply of houses on both fronts, increasing the supply of houses for first-home buyers um, and also increasing the supply of affordable rental houses. If we look at New Zealand's history, I think rental accommodation has been at its most affordable when the state has been an very active player in that market. So since governments over you know several decades retreated away from the provision of quality public affordable rental housing, we've seen a, a significant expansion in private sector rental accommodation and a corresponding increase in cost. Uh, I think if we want to turn that around, we need government to be a very active player in the rental market. So the fact that we've built more state houses or more public houses, as we call them these days, under our government than at any time since the 1950s, and that we've got a, a plan to keep that going and continue that momentum. Those are the sorts of things that will change the dynamic of the rental accommodation market. Why was the decision taken at the budget then to only uh, uh, pencil in one year's worth of new house building? Why not have a much longer track of 3,000 homes a year until we get to affordable housing? Well, of course, we've got our manifesto still to come, which will set out the vision, uh, you know, and the plan for the next three years. 
And I think we do, we are going to need to continue to invest in building more public houses over a quite a period of time to catch up. We've got a challenge around market capacity to deliver. Um, and so we're certainly working on making sure that we're building as many as we can, as fast as we can. It took a while to scale that up. Let's let's be frank about that. We were, you know, Kainga Ora, previously housing New Zealand, had moved from being um, an agency that was focused on building uh, state houses to being an agency that was focused on selling them off. And, and we had to change that. We had to get them back into the house building game and that took a wee while to scale that up. But I think what we're seeing now is that they are scaling up and they're scaling up in areas where they haven't been. There's parts of the country where we're now building state houses who haven't had state houses you know, built in them in, probably in my lifetime. We are bringing in a lot more people though and uh, we're back now to 80,000 net migration or so. How many extra houses do we need to build to get to affordable housing? And what does affordable housing look like? Do you have any idea on what sort of measure? How do we know we're there? I think one of the things that we do need to do as a country is think about what type of housing we're building. So, uh, you know, if we go back 20 to 30 years ago, people would have had the the metric of affordable housing being the ability to buy a three-bedroom, quarter-acre suburban lot. And in reality, um, if we want housing and, and home buying to be affordable, in a country the size of New Zealand with the population of New Zealand, we're going to need to build different types of houses. And we're seeing that the market is already doing that. So we're seeing people, first home buyers, are more likely now, if you're in Auckland or Wellington or even Christchurch, you're more likely to be buying you know, terraced housing um, for your first home if you're buying a new home than you are buying a standalone house. Um, you may aspire to work your way up property later to do, to get to that point, but you're more likely to be buying into something that's a, an attached home or a terraced home or or whatever. And and I actually think that that's that's okay, that's that's fine, but it gives people that that you know that step on the on the property ladder. And actually, you know, if we think about our environmental goals and we think about all of those other things, actually, there's real benefits to having greater intensification of housing that flows from that as well. So is that a house that costs three times income or the rent is less than 30% of disposable income? How do we know we're there? Um, I think when more people can afford to make the choice to buy their own home rather than to rent, I think that's certainly um, something that we have been aiming for. Since we introduced the foreign buyer ban, for example, we've seen more first home buyers in the market routinely and, and succeeding in the market of actually being able to buy a home. I'm, I'm not satisfied with that. I still think there's a lot of work to do to make sure that first-time buyers genuinely are getting the sort of opportunities that they deserve. Why then decide not to go ahead with trying to get a capital gains tax or some sort of wealth tax, which various people have said could help make housing more affordable? So if we take the issue of a capital gains tax first up. A capital gains tax in the New Zealand context would only make sense if you could get enough of a degree of political agreement for it to be enduring. Because a capital gains tax applied prospectively rather than retrospectively would take probably the better part of a decade to ramp up before it started to generate the sort of revenue that would give you choices around what you do with that revenue and before it really started to make a difference. And when you've got, you know, half the parliament, more than, you know, saying, well, we would undo it if a capital gains tax was introduced, then actually we're not, it's not going to achieve the goals that we as a country might have for it. The issue of a wealth tax was one that we canvassed as a government, and I was very comfortable with that work 
happening. I endorsed the fact that we looked at a wealth tax. Um, I thought it was um, worthy of consideration. When I looked at the evidence base around it, when I looked at what the risks associated with the implementation of a wealth tax were, um, I took the view that actually now wasn't the time to do that. And in fact, at any time, there would be real pitfalls in the wealth tax uh, concept. What are the pitfalls? Well, for starters, um, as you're aware, wealth is mobile. And so if we were one of the only countries in the world introducing a wealth tax, there is a risk that you know much of that wealth would actually leave the country. Most of that wealth, though, is in residential land. People would have to leave the country physically, wouldn't they? Not necessarily. Some of the people would leave the country, but some of the wealth associated with them would also flow from the country as well. And that was certainly the the advice that we got um, from those who were putting together the advice on the prospect of a wealth tax. They would also it would also throw up all sorts of issues uh, around scope uh, and around, I guess, you know, potential issues around unfairness in the sense that if you know, let's say you take the the mum and dad family farmer. Who, who, are, who have a land value um, on their farm that's been passed down through the generations of more than $10 million and you started taxing them on that land value, they're not necessarily going to be in a position to stump up with the ready cash to be able to pay that. That's a, it's a generation, it's an asset that might have been built o- up over several generations of that family. And so I, I think, you know, th- there would potentially be some unintended consequences as well. One party in this campaign is proposing a, a, a land tax on residential land values, which would um, avoid some of the um, valuation issues and uh, obviously mean that farmers weren't taxed. What do you think of that idea? Well, there's not just one party, actually. If you look at the National Party, potentially, they're proposing a form of land tax for their, to fund their transport policies. When you talk about value capture, that's exactly what you're, you're effectively talking about. You're talking about taxing people for the added value they get on their land from the fact that you're building more, more roads in, in that vicinity. Labor has talked about value capture as well. Yeah, and, and it's not without difficulty. Um, we haven't been quite so gung-ho about it as the National Party are. Um, and when you look at, you know, what what value capture actually means, it does effectively mean that you're levying or taxing people for the increase in value of their land as a result of government activity. Um, so a land tax, what do you think? It's not something that I'm proposing at the moment. Um, and, 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 you know, I've always, again, I also want to really reiterate here, I think it's important that the big changes to the tax system have a public mandate associated with them. So it's not something that we're campaigning on. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10%. Uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is, is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, then it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. 
They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. At Zed, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at z.co.nz. Labor's talked a lot about improving the migration and particularly the the work um, visa situation, in part talking about the pressures on uh, infrastructure. How fast do you think New Zealand's population should grow? How fast, uh, what sort of speed should we plan for? Because a lot of our decisions will have infrastructure that's around 20, 50, 100 years. So we need to know how big the population will be in 100 years. Yeah, I guess there are a basket of issues in here that we need to consider. One is, you know, what, what's our goal around population growth? What are we hoping to achieve through population growth where it's not uh, population replacement, so it's not natural birth rates where you're bringing people in? What, what are the goals and what are the things we're trying to achieve there? I think we're trying to achieve a more prosperous economic environment. So we want, we want businesses to have access to the labour and to the skilled workers that they need. I think one of the things that I would like us as a country to try and avoid is the idea that we create the illusion of economic growth simply through population growth. And we've had periods of that in the past where actually we haven't grown our economy on a per capita basis. We just grow in it by increasing the size of the population. Uh, and I think we we don't necessarily leave ourselves with a higher standard of living, which ultimately is what we may aspire to from economic growth as a result of that. So I think there are, I'm, I'm not going to, I've never been um, of the view that you should have a population growth target, but I think we just need to make sure that what we're doing in terms of our economic policy and in terms of our population policies, you know, immigration and so on, are focused on making sure that we're raising the standard of living for New Zealanders. And so that does mean weighing up things like, you know, how can we sustain, what, what sort of level of population growth can we sustain with the infrastructure that we have? You say there's no target, but accidentally on purpose, both National and Labor have allowed or engineered population growth of one and a half to two percent for the last 20 years, but haven't invested in the infrastructure to cope with that sort of population growth. So what sort of population growth should we be investing for? What sort of level of infrastructure should we build for? Well, I think one of the challenges that we are facing as a government is actually just building the infrastructure to cope with the population that we have right now. So if you think about housing and roading and public transport and water infrastructure and all of those things, um, and the changing nature of infrastructure needs amongst our existing population, and this is particularly the case in energy consumption, we've got quite a big challenge to build out the infrastructure that we need to sustain the population that we've got at the moment. And we do need to factor into that, um, making sure that as we do that, we've got one eye on the future and the fact that the population is not going to stay static, it's going to continue to grow. And so we need to be building, you know, I'd, I'd like to see us getting ahead of the curve, you know, so that we're building ahead of time rather than catching up all of the time. Just looking at the climate, um, do you think that the structure of the government, the share of the government to GDP, which um, the finance minister has talked about trying to keep at or below 30% of GDP and the debt ceiling net debt 30% of GDP. Can we 
really address climate change, let alone housing affordability, with those particular limits? Because you could argue there's no way you can really invest enough in the future to deal with these future liabilities unless you increase those debt levels and the size of government. In terms of government debt, and I've always been pretty open about my views on this, and the Minister of Finance, I mean, I fully support the um, the fiscal rules that he has said, but I've also, because I think it does give us more discretion to increase borrowing if we need to, but I have always been clear in the distinction between borrowing for consumption versus borrowing for investment in the future. So when you're investing in intergenerational assets, and that includes human capability as well, then there is justification for using borrowing for that. When you're investing for consumption, whether that's in healthcare or or, or other things, I, I I think you shouldn't be borrowing for that because ultimately you're you're leaving the future generations to pay for the consumption of today. So education is an example where, you know, borrowing to invest in and upgrading our schools and expanding our capabilities in, in the education system is justifiable on the basis that it's an investment in the future. Borrowing for roading and for, um, you know, uh, critical infrastructure that, you know, water and so on is absolutely justified because future generations will benefit from those investments. So I think as long as we're clear what we're borrowing for and what we're not borrowing for, um, I think that there is a conversation to be had there. Say, for example, dental care. Um, Labor's just announced its extension of um, universe, of uh, funding of basic dental care to the age of 30. Um, why not go universal, invest that money in effectively helping an entire generation be healthier and more productive and not use the hospital system so much? You could see that as an investment. We've we've said that we want to step out universal dental care, free dental care over time. If I think about someone who's you know in the, a teenager today, I would love to be in a position where they where where they do get free dental care throughout their life. Starting with you know in the next three years, we've said that we'll expand that to thirty. In future governments, I'd like to you know see that continue to expand. Um, because I do think that that's the sort of investment that you can make in avoiding, actually, more expensive healthcare costs in the future. Similarly, in primary primary healthcare, you know, they're making prescriptions free, looking at breaking down barriers for people getting access to healthcare earlier so that they don't end up in the emergency department and they don't end up having to have inpatient stays because actually we've dealt with their health issues before they've got to that point. Um, I, I think those are absolutely sound investments. Just finally on climate, um, do you think we're going to meet our Paris target commitments? I think it's going to be challenging. I think we're going to meet our first emissions budget. I think we, we we're still scoping, as you know, the next two emissions budgets that come after that in terms of what we're going to need to do to set them and to confirm them and also then to meet them. I think the the big gnarly part comes in the next couple of budgets where we look at things like, you know, agricultural emissions and making sure that we're properly pricing that and properly uh, making sure that we're we're driving those emissions down. Transport is still going to be a a big challenging area for us. Our investments in rail and our investments in mass rapid transit are essential if we're actually going to achieve some of our longer run goals around climate emissions. Do you think there's a danger that over the last six years, Labor has not done enough to reduce emissions and therefore built up a larger liability for these emissions credits? 
one of the things that I've done since I became Prime Minister is run the rule over, and, and this has been hotly debated in the last few months, run the rule over, over all of the investment that we're making in um, combating emissions and, you know, um, reducing our emissions and combating climate change to try and focus on the things that deliver the best bang for buck. You can do a lot of things in the space that seem superficially attractive, but when you actually boil it down, they don't actually shift the dial very much. So um, the you know classic example was a, a scheme that was going to cost half a billion dollars, um, which was going to see people trading in old um, you know um, combustion engine cars for EVs. It was going to reduce our emissions by such a negligible amount. On the other hand, for a fraction of that money, we could work with New Zealand Steel to reduce one percent of the country's emissions every year. So, you know, my focus really has been on saying this is a climate emergency. It is urgent. So let's make sure that everything we're doing actually has that sense of urgency about it and is actually achieving the biggest bang for buck. Do you think then that the government, Treasury, should have started including that potential liability in the Crown accounts, which Treasury has estimated could be well over $20 billion uh, on the current trajectory? I think however we account for it, whether it's in the Crown accounts or, you know, or however else, we have to face up to the reality that this is a cost we're going to have to meet. And the choice of not meeting it isn't really an attractive choice because we've seen through the cyclone, we've seen through um, the flooding, what happens when we turn our backs on the challenge of climate change. We just have to keep up the momentum here. Prime Minister, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks, Bernard. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.